because uh, the proclamation of good news is uh, something we're doing together, um, not just something that I'm doing, uh, I pray the Lord be with you. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time, and I pray that we would be able to hear the good news that you have for us to hear today. Help us to bring ourselves to this moment uh, to be able to hear and respond to what you're saying to us in Jesus' name. Amen? Before we get into the sermon, I just want you to notice the readings that we read today. They give a prophetic vision, Isaiah, of God's future, right? I will, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. And then in Jesus Christ, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he says, I'm summing all of that up, and it's begun. God's new future has begun. And then in Revelation 21, we see the fulfillment of those things, that what started in the resurrection of Christ is now happening to the whole cosmos. That's basically our good news today, that what God has done for Christ in the resurrection, He will do for the whole cosmos, including you. And so, whatever it is that you come here with, that you perhaps lack hope about, whatever has been done to you, whatever you've done, there's hope for you, because God's renewing all things. He's making everything new, that what He has done in Christ, He will do for all of us and for the whole cosmos. Amen? We've been in this series, Beginnings and Endings, and uh, we're starting the endings, part of the Beginnings and Endings series. And we've been through this series where we've talked in nine parts about uh, the beginning of our story. We've spent a lot of time in Genesis. We've learned that God, in His love, creates the world as a temple for communion with those He has created, uh, His image bearers. And it's good. It's very good. Creation is good. Uh, that's one of the main things we learned. Of course, we distrust God, and we reject His love. We reject uh, the provision and the presence and the power that He wants to offer to us, and we say we're going to try to get our belonging and our significance and our security our own way. And we uh, reject those things, and of course, we inherit then these consequences that come to us because of those choices. Uh, but God, even in the midst of that, refuses to abandon us, and He begins this process of salvation. He begins this process of redemption right from the very outset, and He moves toward us in love. And so now we're looking to endings, and we're saying, where is this story going, this story we live in as Christians, as people who follow Jesus? Uh, what is God doing in our world? Where is He taking this world? What is our ultimate hope as Christians? And this is important because we're really confused about this. I just want to say that. As Christians, by and large, we are really confused about where this is all going and where our hope lies. And it's not your fault, right? Like, don't, don't worry about that. You, it's things that we've been taught. It's things that are in the air. There's reasons for all these things. But most people simply don't know what Orthodox Christ, Christian teaching is on this subject, okay? So you're going to be hearing things that might sound new to your ears, I guarantee you these are not new things. The new things are the things that we thought were the old things. These things are the things that the early Christians believed. These things are, the, are what Orthodox Christian teaching has always taught. It's just that lately, the past couple hundred years, we've gotten confused about these things. We've gotten confused about these things. And so this is actually really old. And, and, and it's important for us to know where this story is heading because this isn't just about a theoretical question about premillennial or postmillennial or like, you know, I wonder what the detail, you know, like, is, have any, any of you guys ever seen charts that map out the end times? Anybody familiar with this? Right? 
That's not what's at stake here. It doesn't really, you know, mapping it, what, the beast and the, you know, all the stuff from Revelation that we think is, you know, it's all future-oriented. Spoiler alert, most of it's present-oriented. There's a couple spots in Revelation that are future-oriented. And we'll talk about, guys, we have a class on Tuesday nights. If you want to, we'll talk about all these questions if you want. You know, we can come up with all kinds of questions. What about this? What about that? We'll talk more about it in the class. Here in this sermon, I don't have time to address it all. But this is really important, not just because, you know, we're sort of curious about the post-mortem state, like what happens when we die? Well, I don't know. Let's, let's think about that. That's not the reason this is important. It's much more than that. This is about understanding God's purposes for the cosmos, all of creation. What is God doing with us? What is he doing with the, with the world? Where is he taking it? If we don't have a clear picture of where God is taking it, we don't know how to live today. Yeah? How many of you guys have ever been in uh, theater? No? It's a couple of you guys? I was talking with Joel, uh, uh, who, is, who is, did a lot in theater. Um, the, uh, this Joel. I'm really, we, we now have two Joels. We have two Amandas. It's getting... Right, right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I just called him out, because he said, like, I'm really insecure about, about this, so I'm sorry, I forgot about that part of it. Anyway... But I think it's great, Joel. I think it's great. And uh, you see how many other people had a theater background. I did some theater when I was younger. But anyway, um, as, you're, as you're developing the character that you play in that play, it's important to know where the story is headed so that you know how to, how to deliver your lines. And it's especially important if you're ad-libbing your lines, if there's a kind of an improv, improv kind of way of, of doing theater, right? Because how do you know where to take the story unless you know where the story's going. And that's why it's important for us to do this. I'm, to put it starkly, we don't know how to live as Christians unless we understand where our story is going. We won't, we won't know how to do anything. We won't know how to, how to look for a job or how to be in a relationship or raise our kids or make any of these decisions that we have to make. We won't know how to do any of it unless we know the end of our story. So these questions uh, for me... I think the first time they really got real for me was when my dad died suddenly, 18, almost 18 years ago when I was 25 years old. Um, Deb, we had two kids at the time. She was actually in Minnesota where I grew up. We were living in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And Deb was there uh, for grandmother's funeral. Um, and so there was already this kind of <laughs> pall of death over the family. And uh, so I was there. I was in our house, our little apartment that we had. Uh, by myself, um, and uh, I got a call from the pastor at my parents' church, which I thought that was kind of weird, you know, like, oh, it's like, but why are you calling? That's interesting. And uh, I remember he was really short and to the point. He just said, Ben, like, I'm really sorry to have to deliver this news, but I'm calling with terrible news. Your dad was playing basketball today, had a massive heart attack. You know, and he kind of paused there, and I was like, so, like, is he okay? That was my question. And he said, no, no, he's not. He didn't make it. I'm really sorry. He's gone. That was it. So, I, you know, obviously I'm shocked. Um, I called my pastor. I was working at a church at the time, so he's also my boss. Um, and, you know, I kind of did some of the, you know, some of the normal arrangements, like, okay, we've got to book a flight, you know, I've got to get back home, and figure out what's going to happen on Sunday and who can cover my responsibilities. And once I kind of got through all that, you know, I had this time <laughs> to think about what had just happened. I'm 25 years old. I've got two little kids. This is 
completely out of blue. My dad was 50. Um, and uh, it seemed so surreal to me that my dad was dead. I'd, you know, I'd had grandparents die, and so I you know, was familiar. Obviously, people who were close to me had died, but this was the first time somebody this close to me had died. And I was confronted with this question of like, like, what do I really believe about this? Like, what happens to him? Where is he? Like, what happens to me? What happened? Like, where does, where, where, where does all this go, right? All of a sudden, I had somebody on the other side of this death thing. And I was like, I got to figure out what I believe about this. Like, what, is, what, is, what does Christian teaching say about all this stuff? What's happened to him and what will happen to him? And I remember I had purchased a, a book of common prayer a few years prior just to use. I loved the prayers in it. I loved the, the scriptures in it. And I had been using it. I was a worship pastor at this church. And so I'd been using it in our worship, you know, just finding prayers and kind of learning what it was and that kind of thing. This is the book of common prayer, a little version if you're interested. Uh, and it's an Anglican thing. It's, we're an Anglican church. And so obviously we use, we use this a lot. But um, and so I, you know, I, I purchased this a couple years prior, and as I was packing my bag to go to, back to Minnesota uh, to be with my family and for the funeral, I just I popped it in my bag. I was like, like I, don't, I, don't know how to, I don't even know how to think about this stuff, but I wonder if there's, like, if I look at the funeral service <laughs> in the Book of Common Prayer, if they'll show me how to think about this, or, you know, what, what to say about it. Uh, and so... Um, I'll talk more about this later, but it was my first encounter with clarity about Christian teaching about the things of the end and death and what happens here. And it was my first encounter with the clarity that, that Christianity has. And what it brought up, and I'll, I'll say more about this in a little bit, but the result was that even in the midst of my shock and, and my grief, I was already starting to realize, like, man, I... I could have used a dad for a few more years, you know, like, I, I, I could have used him. <laughs> like, like, this is a real bummer. He was a good dad, you know what I mean? Like, that, that was a bummer. And so in the midst of all of that, because I had read the funeral service, because I understood, I had read the scriptures that, that are listed there with a new lens of having, I actually know somebody who's on the other side, uh, it brought a profound sense of hope. And it's weird to say, but like victory in the midst of it, a profound sense, even in the midst of the grief. Um, but it wasn't because I trusted that my dad was now in heaven, even though I do believe that. It was because of what's going to happen to my dad later. That's what we want to talk about today. How many of you guys uh, know the story of Lord of the Rings? Yeah, a little bit? Okay. It's one of my favorite stories. It's Wonderful book, and the, they did a great job on the movies, and so. Um, it's it's you know, a well-known story. It's a beautiful story. There's a lot of wonderful parts about it, but uh, I think some of the most beautiful scenes are in the basically the epilogue. It's after the great battle, after the ring has been destroyed. Some of the most beautiful scenes take place there. And one of those scenes is uh, Samwise Gamgee, who is, I think, the actual hero of the whole story. Right? Um, so Samwise Gamgee is the, the real hero. Um, and he, he's been helping his friend Frodo get the ring of power uh, from where it is to Mount Doom, where they're going to throw it into the fires of Mount Doom and, and destroy it, right? So the great temptation in the Lord of the Rings is to use the ring of power for good, but it never works out that way, right? The ring of power always twists and distorts and becomes an instrument for, of Sauron, who desires to cover all the lands in darkness, right? Uh, so... 
they, they do get to Mount Doom, and Sam helps Frodo uh, get there and uh, to try to destroy the ring so they can defeat the power of Sauron, who's seeking to cover all the lands in darkness. And their dear friend along the way, Gandalf the Grey, the wizard who's been helping them, he has died along the way, so Samwise thinks, right? So Sam thinks that Gandalf has died defending them from, from a Balrog, which is an ancient fire demon, you know, uh, <laughs> as as you encounter from time to time when you're on this quest. So anyway, so, uh, and the, you know, the, the journey is harrowing. They almost die several times in, in the attempt. Uh, they're just two hobbits, these little people. They despair for their lives many times, but eventually they make it to Mount Doom. Eventually, no spoilers here, but eventually the ring is thrown into the fires of Mount Doom. Uh, but in the process, uh, you know, Sam uh, is unconscious and is unsure of kind of what's, what's really happened to him. And there's a scene later on where he wakes up and he wakes up and Gandalf is there. And he's surprised to see that Gandalf is alive. So, and, he, and he says this phrase. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? I want to suggest that that is Christian eschatology. That our answer to, is everything sad going to come untrue? Because of the resurrection of Jesus, our answer is yes, absolutely. Everything sad is going to come untrue. That's our good news today. Our hope is, not that, is that God will do for us and the whole cosmos what he did for Jesus, resurrection from the dead, inhabiting God's new creation here on earth, fulfilling our vocation as image bearers and icons of God. So there is hope for you today, no matter what you have done. There is hope for you today, no matter what's been done to you. God is making everything new, and everything sad will come untrue. But that's not what most of us think Christian hope is. This is, what I, this is why I was saying we were confused about this. Some of us think that Christian hope is kind of the same thing as Walt Disney's vision of the future. So I want to compare this to Walt Disney's kind of vision of the future, which is part of uh, the myth of progress. The myth of progress is basically that everything is just going to get better and better. We're just getting better and better automatically, inevitably. The Enlightenment taught us this. The Industrial Revolution taught us this. The prosperity that people were, were starting to live in taught us this. Like, look at everything's going great. Science and technology are giving us a life that we always wanted, and everything is going to go up and to the right. And this is basically the vision behind, if you've ever been to Walt Disney World, if you've been to Tomorrowland, there's a feature called the Carousel of Progress. Have <laughs> you guys been to the Carousel of Progress? Yes. It's not a very well, it's not like a cool event to go to. You know, you don't need a fast pass to go to the Carousel of Progress. <laughs> but the Carousel of Progress is like a rotating stage show uh, that, that kind of takes you from the 1900s all the way to the 21st century. And, um, you know, Act 1 is in the 1900s, and the scene opens, there's robins chirping in the background, uh, there's a father of a family, John, who's sitting in a wooden rocking chair beside his home, and, and inside his home, and he's, he's saying, you know, things just could not get any better than they are right now. And he starts listing all these wonderful inventions, uh, the technological achievements of his day. There's buildings, we've got them up to 20 stories tall, can you believe that? Moving pictures with sound, unbelievable. And uh, 8,000 automobiles, you know? He's very impressed with what the United States has been able to do. Gas lamps, telephones, cast iron stoves, ice boxes. And the radio plays the song, there's a, there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. And the carousel spins, moving the guests 
to the next house, which takes place during the Roaring Twenties, right? So Act Two, the Roaring Twenties. Again, they're sitting in the kitchen. It's the same family, but now it's in the Twenties, and there's wires. There's new electric machines kind of all over the room. Things have changed a lot in the last 20 years. Charles Lindbergh is going to try to fly over the Atlantic. I don't think he's going to make it. You know, like, there's these, kind of, uh, these kinds of things. You can get from, you know, New York to California by train in three days. So they're very impressed with these technological achievements. And again, as the stage starts to turn, they start singing the song again. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. And the guests move from that next scene into the fabulous 40s. Right? Roaring 20s, fabulous 40s, Act 3, 1940s. More talk about progress, all the wonders that technology has given them. They sing again, there's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. And we move all the way to the 21st century. That was kind of a big leap, right? It's like, whoa, here we are. Here we are, 21st century, and it's Christmas. There's a wife working on a computer. Uh, the kids are playing a virtual reality game. All the devices are voice activated, and Grandpa's kind of gee-whizzing about, a, you know, like, well, you know, back in my day. And the kids are like, oh, Grandpa, not another story from when you were a kid. And they all kind of, you know, they're laughing, and then they, they end up accidentally burning the Christmas turkey because one, you know, Grandma got a high score on the virtual reality game. It was 550. They're like, wow, 550. And then the oven goes to 550, and it burns the Christmas turkey. Oh, man. You know, it's like a really cheesy sitcom ending. So everybody's like, oh, man. You know, and Dad says, maybe someday the devices can just read our minds so they know what we mean, Right? Anybody who's ever tried to talk to one of those Alexa devices knows what I'm talking about. No, Alexa! Anyway, it's not what I said. It's not what I mean. Uh, and, then, and then the last line, uh, the son says, Don't worry, Dad. Someday everything will be so automated that you won't ever have to cook another Christmas turkey again. The family all laughs and the dog barks and they all start singing again. There's a great, big, beautiful tomorrow. That's the end. Up and to the right, progress, science, technology. It's going to give us the life that we can't even believe how awesome everything is, right? The myth of progress. This is sometimes confused with Christian hope. Sometimes we think Christian hope is like, well, things are going to get better. Eventually, we'll have a cure for cancer. Sorry your grandma died, but eventually, maybe things will be better. Sorry your baby died, but hey, we've got iPhones, You notice the weakness? <laughs> the myth of progress can't deal with evil. Can't deal with it at all. What's missing from this up and to the right trajectory of the carousel of progress? Oh, things like World War I, where 16 million people died. World War II, where 80 million people died. Auschwitz. Hiroshima. There's a couple things missing, right? This myth of progress is a myth. It doesn't work because it cannot deal with the reality of evil. That's the problem it has. It's just not true that things are getting better and better. In contrast to seeing, this world, seeing the world this way, getting better and better, there's another version of Christian hope that says that it's all going to get worse and worse. And our hope is basically that we get whisked away in the rapture before it gets too bad. And that there's going to be people who are left behind who are going to have to deal with it. That's another version of Christian hope that's not biblical. It's not Christian enough. It's not true. Incidentally, I find it interesting that if that's our hope that we're going to get whisked away from the terrible things that are going to happen, why did we write a whatever part series about the terrible things that are going to happen? 
Like that's what those books are all about. Why are we so obsessed with what's going to happen with those who are left behind? You ever wonder about that? I'll leave that there. <laughs> this, this is rooted in, I don't have time to get too far into it, but it's rooted in Plato's philosophy, which says that the material world is evil, corrupt, and it's, it needs to be escaped. And so in this version of Christian hope, what we hope for ultimately is that our immaterial, our spiritual souls are going to leave our bodies, and we're going to leave the created world behind, and we're going to have a disembodied bliss with God that doesn't involve bodies, that doesn't involve creation, it doesn't involve the mess of physicality. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's a version of this. There's a lot of old songs that talk about this. So the created world, at best, is sort of irrelevant to us, and at worst, it's an evil, dark place, and our immortal souls are seeking to escape into heavenly bliss. That's a version of Christian hope that many of us have grown up with, that many of us believe. It's I'll fly away spirituality. I've actually heard it argued, you know, since the whole world is going to be destroyed in the end, who cares how we treat it today? Why does it matter? Right? Who cares about what we do with our bodies? Who cares about what happens to the planet? Neither one of these, progress or escape, neither one of these are Christian hope. They've been caricatured as Christian hope, but neither one is really actually what the Bible proclaims to us about what Christian hope is. And over against these sub-Christian options, the central Christian affirmation is that, the creator, that what the Creator God has done for Jesus Christ and supremely in His resurrection is what He intends to do for the whole world, the entire cosmos, all of its history. That's what God will do. Raise us from the dead, not get rid of the world, and not just sort of make the world a little better. God is going to raise us from the dead, and we're going to inhabit new creation with new bodies, fulfilling our vocation as God's image bearers and His icons. That's our Christian hope. Christian hope is a lot more like Samwise Gamgee, waking up, <laughs> laughing, saying, is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? That's our hope, that we're going to wake up laughing and beginning to see that everything sad is coming untrue. God is making all things new. Our hope is not that everything is getting better and better our, and that our souls or that our souls will eventually fly away from our bodies and will escape this awful place. Our hope is that everything sad will come untrue. Our hope is that God will do for us and the whole cosmos what he did for Jesus, resurrection from the dead, inhabiting God's new creation here on earth, fulfilling our vocation as image bearers and icons of God. And so there's hope for you today, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, God is making all things new, and everything sad will come untrue. God's not going to destroy and replace the world. God's going to renew and transform the world. We're not going to fly away. We're here to stay. The gospel isn't, everything's fine. The gospel also isn't, you can go to heaven when you die. The gospel is that God will do for the whole cosmos what he did for Jesus in his resurrection. In the end, the New Testament teaches us that death will not simply be redefined. That's part of the problem if we think that the gospel is about life after death, disembodied bliss. We're not defeating death there. We're just redefining it. We're just talking about it from another angle. That's not what the New Testament says God's going to do with death. God has defeated death 
and will defeat death. That's what we proclaim. We'll proclaim that in more detail in a couple weeks. Um, God has defeated death. And this is what we see in the reading, supremely the the Revelation reading uh, today, that it affirms, and this is what we've seen in the beginnings, it affirms the goodness of creation and the reality of evil. The myth of progress does not affirm, the myth of progress can't deal with the reality of evil, and the escape story doesn't take seriously enough the goodness of creation. Does that make sense? So what we're holding together here is the goodness of creation, the nature of evil, and saying God will come and heal what is diseased. He will transform what is broken. He will liberate what is enslaved. He will transform what is distorted. Why? Because creation is good. It's not to be thrown away. It's good. It's just deformed because of sin. And so God's work is to renew and transform And it's accomplished by the same God who created everything in love. He comes to us and redeems in love. And Scripture has all kinds of ways of talking about this, but the way that we see it in the Revelation text that we read is the marriage of heaven and earth. It's a marriage ceremony. Did you guys catch that? The new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven like a bride. First, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, which is the exact same thing Isaiah said, right? First heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Remember in our beginnings part, we talked about the sea was this metaphor for chaos, the waters covering the earth in, in, in this chaotic energy, right? There's no longer any sea. What does that mean? God's swept it away. A great shadow has left the land. God has swept evil away. There's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. See, it's not we who go to heaven it's heaven that comes to earth. And the new Jerusalem is the church. It's the, it's the fellowship of the saints coming down out of heaven, coming to earth. This is the ultimate rejection of all forms of Gnosticism, which says that, the earth, that, that physicality and spirituality need to be separated. God says, no, they're to be married. They're getting married. Heaven and earth are getting married. That's actually what's happening here. It's the marriage of heaven and earth. This is the final answer to the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is the final fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 1, that, create, that in creation, male and female would work that, together to reflect God's image in the world. This is the final accomplishment of God's great design to defeat and abolish death forever, rescuing creation from its decay. This is what we're seeing here. And then it says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling is with his people now. And he will dwell with them. They will be my people. They will be his people, and God himself will be their God and be, be with them and be their God. God's going to be present, which is what his goal was the whole time. Remember, he created the whole world as a temple for his presence that he could be in communion with us. And now Revelation 21 is saying, he's going to do it. It's happening. Heaven and earth are getting married. Finally, the sad things are all coming untrue. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Death has been defeated. All of the sad things are coming untrue. Dying, mourning, crying, pain. They're done away with. God's making everything new. So our hope is not that everything is getting better and better or that our souls will eventually fly away 
from our bodies and will escape this awful place. Our hope is that everything sad will come untrue. Our hope is that God will do for us and for the whole cosmos what he did for Jesus, resurrection from the dead. Inhabiting God's new creation here on earth, fulfilling our vocation as image bearers and icons of God. So there's hope for you today, no matter what you've done. There's hope for you today, no matter what's been done to you. Because God is making all things new, and he's making all the sad things come untrue. There's a missiologist and a missionary named Leslie Newbegin uh, that is a He's a great author if you want to read some of his stuff. Um, but he, one time he was asked um, if he was optimistic or pessimistic about the future. Just kind of one of these journalist questions, right? Are you, as you think about the future of the church, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic? This was his answer. I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. I don't need to be an optimist. Or a pessimist. It's already happened. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That's the reason that we can say a resounding yes to, will all the sad things come untrue? Yes, they will. Why? Because Christ is raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of what's going to happen to the whole universe, including you. Christ is raised from the dead. So how do we respond to this today? This sense of victory that I had uh, in the midst of you know, learning about my dad's death and his funeral and everything, uh, one of the ways that it manifested itself uh, was that on his tombstone we put, uh, we put the phrase from one of, the, one of the gospels, I think it is, maybe it's Acts. Um, but it says, uh, it's the phrase of the angel to the people who came looking for Jesus. Why do you look for the living among the dead? That's what it says on my dad's tombstone in Fairmont, Minnesota. Why do you look for the living among the dead? It was kind of our way of saying, you know what, death? You won't have the last word. You will not have the last word. People used to put uh, the phrase resurgam on their tombstones, which means I shall arise. It's another way of kind of, if I can put it this way, giving the bird to death. Can I put it that way? The older kids aren't in here, so they won't ask your parent, you know, like, what, what does that mean? But that's... Yeah, okay, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, this is, this is the kind of, you know, in the 18th century, they used to put this on tombstones. I shall arise. You know? Death, God will not allow death to have its way with us. So my comfort in my dad's death was not that he was in heaven, although that's comforting. He's with Christ. But my ultimate comfort was that one day in God's new creation, death, the enemy that took him from me, will be defeated. And that one day, God will be all in all. That new creation will come. So where do you need hope today? Is it for something that's happened to you that you feel hopeless about? Where do you need hope today? Is it for something that you've done? A relationship, a situation that brings you grief, brings you suffering. Maybe it's something happening in the world that just feels, it tempts you to cynicism. Where is it for you? What worries you? What grieves you? Let's respond today with this prayer that's in your booklet. It says, Lord Jesus, in the midst of, and whatever it is for you, name it. Name it out loud. 
I place my hope in resurrection and new creation today. May everything sad come untrue in the fullness of your kingdom. Lord, in your mercy, and we'll all respond. Hear our prayer.